This is an ABC podcast. Good morning to all our listeners. Very pleased to have you company and to be able to welcome you to Saturday Extra this Saturday, February the 11th. This morning, if you search the web to find answers to all manner of life's challenges, big and small, you'll be drawn into the colossal race by some of the world's biggest companies to control the related technology. It's the full arrival, much anticipated, of the artificial intelligence phenomenon, the poster child being that chat GPT product launched by Microsoft. But Google's arrived too, and the big Chinese companies are imminent. It will matter because it'll change some basic assumptions, and we'll bring you up to date. Plus, the challenge to reduce our road toll, it's the highest in five years. And why did a bunch of Australians volunteer for Islamic State? That's later this half hour, a real search, deep search for some answers as to why 200 or so Australians of typical backgrounds, really, signed up to go to Syria. The tech race in our second hour, along with the February edition of The Pick, I'm delighted to say, with choices of what to see, read and hear. So lots for you as you start your weekend or wherever, whenever it's convenient for you to listen. But first, how the Australian-Turkish community is responding in so many ways to help victims as they grapple with the breadth of the earthquake disaster in Turkey. Turkey. Yesterday, all mosques in Australia held a special prayer service to mourn victims and to bring together local communities affected by these harrowing events in their homelands. Prayer vigils were also held in Melbourne overnight. In Sydney, Serkan Ina is involved in sending emergency donations and funds to Turkey. He is the CEO of the ARO, the Australian Relief Organisation, and it's working closely with Amity Colleges. That's a network of schools where many of the students come from Turkish families. Welcome, Sir Khan. Good morning, Geraldine. I know you attended Friday prayers yesterday. That must have been a particularly challenging Friday prayers, given the terrible news coming out of your homeland. Yes, you are right. I went to the mosque yesterday and I saw a diverse group of people who had gathered to show their support for the Turkish community. It was heartening to see individuals from different backgrounds come together in solidarity to offer their condolences and support to those affected by the tragedy. It was clear that the community was rallying together in this time of need. Uh, it was also wonderful to see our members of parliament and the councillors, Bosnian Mufti, show their support and solidarity by attending Friday prayers and offering their condolences. And uh, their presence at the Friday prayers was a powerful symbol of unity and showed that the entire community, including those in positions of leadership, is united in their grief and in their efforts to provide support and aid. Yes. And after the regular Friday prayer, we performed a funeral prayer, which was performed for the victims as a way of expressing respect and the condolences to the deceased and their families. Look, I understand you experienced Turkey's previous most serious earthquake. That was the 1999 one, the Izmit quake. Uh, It must increase your sense of what people will be experiencing now, although I think that was at least summertime, wasn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. Yes, it, mm, Turkey is, as you know, among the world's most seismically active countries as it is situated on a number of active fault lines. 17th of August in 99, I was in Turkey when 7.4 magnitude earthquake hit Izmit, uh, the city around 100 kilometers east of Istanbul. Although my hometown is 400 kilometers away from Izmit, we felt there was an earthquake and they rushed onto the streets, streets at the middle of the night without taking anything with us. Uh, luckily, as you said, it was summer. Everyone was outside with their pajamas and scared. Everyone was in shock. It was a terrible feeling. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank God there was not any building collapsed in my home, in my town, because as I said, we were far from the center of the earthquake. Mm. Uh, but there, there was a remark. Yeah. Well, it must have been, um, and I mean, I've been two previous, uh, as you say, it's an extremely seismically challenged place. Um, can you tell yeah. us what's happening in your immediate community, uh, Sir Khan, to raise funds yeah. and send donations? Because you really have two hats, don't you? You you were once principal of yes. Amity Colleges <laughs> and now you're at this Australian yes, Relief Organisation. Yes, yes, you are right. Uh, as Australian Relief Organization, we quickly started our campaign when we heard the news. We have a very strong and connected community with many dedicated volunteers. We contacted our partner organizations to reach the people in need in Turkey. One truck of ready-made food that can be consumed quick quickly was distributed uh, to the victims right after the earthquake. And also, as you know, Syria has been affected from uh, mm. this earthquake as well. They have been struggling a lot for more than 10 years because of the war, as you know. Uh, we have sent some of our donations through United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Uh, they recently distributed essential needs such as thermal blankets, mattresses, uh, medical care. They also supply shelter. So, so can I just interrupt you? You had people straight away on the ground. You had links in Turkey that you could activate and get things to them straight away. Yeah, you are right. Uh, we have some, you know, just uh, uh, members uh, on the side and uh, they, are, they are distributing the food and the necessary items that the victims oh, need. Oh, well, that's very impressive, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think that um, uh, some of your um, members, some of the members, not necessarily of your community, but of the Turkish community jumped on planes in the immediate aftermath. Are there people from your community going over? I mean, you're supposed to, I suppose you have to work out how helpful you could be or not yeah yeah some of some of the some of the community members just the uh, people uh, in our community went to turkey to to support uh, their loved ones yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, what about the efforts from the school itself? Uh, you know, it, it's children must be brought into this. It it's, yeah. must be challenging, but they're a long way away. But I mean, how do you how do you draw them in in a way that is helpful to them as well? Yeah. Uh, after announce, announcing the campaign, we had huge support by different communities from different backgrounds. We have close partnership with the schools across Australia, like Amity Colleges here in Sydney, Sirius College in Melbourne, Pinnacle College in South Australia, Wisdom College in Queensland, Fountain College in Western Australia. Also, we also got a lot of support from some dialogue centres like Affinity in Sydney, AIs in Melbourne. Um, 
just uh, I would like to give some uh, examples of the events that we organize with these schools uh, for current earthquake victims. I think it could interest you. Uh, the Amity College Alumni Association Saga is organizing a moonlight cinema and inviting all the students and the parents. Uh, the school's pastoral care team is going to use the money from the vegetables and the other products grown in the school, grown in the school garden and greenhouse to send to Turkey and Syria. Primary school children are going to put their pocket money uh, into a big jar in the school garden for the earthquake victims. Mm -hmm. They've already organized Mufti Days. Uh, high school girls will do cake sales. Community engagement team uh, department, which is another active department of the schools, is supporting fundraising event called Run, Walk and Write, which is organized by another our partner organizations called right. Advocates for Dignity. Yeah, these are just few examples. Well, look, I wish you luck. I mean, I must say some of the... It's been very harrowing watching. Heaven knows what it's like to be there. Look, good luck, Sir Khan, um, and I do hope that you're able to really rally your community and, and that the, the bigger community can rally behind you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Sir Khan Ina, who's the CEO of the Australian Respond Relief Organisation, uh, and um, the ABC has launched the ABC Gives Turkey and Syria Earthquake Appeal in partnership with the Emergency Action Alliance, acronyms everywhere. It's an um, umbrella agency, the, the EEA, which enables 15 of Australia's leading aid charities, including Caritas Australia, Plan International Australia, Australia, Save the Children and Australia for UNHCR to deliver life-saving aid. Now, if you would like to donate and support fundraising activities, you can do so via ABC Gives, which is www.abc.net.au slash gives. And I mean, head to the ABC website and you can work out how to, uh, how to access all that. So that's something to watch and uh, we'll be returning to that, I feel sure, because I think the politics are going to get a bit interesting, but that's not quite for now. Up next, the people who joined Islamic State here in Australia. There was a period between 2013 and 2017 when Islamic State, IS, was an almost daily feature of the news. The group's sudden rise and ability to recruit young men and some women and girls from the West to travel and take up arms took many governments by surprise. More than 200 Australians, men, women and children, answered the call of then-leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi to travel to Syria and Iraq and help establish a new Islamic state, a caliphate. For a long time, the picture of the roles played by Australians in IS has been incomplete. The nature of their activities meant much of the information that's been gathered has remained classified or suppressed by the participants themselves. And then there's the difficulty of gathering evidence from Syria and securing a conviction in court. Well, Dr. Roger Shanahan has sought to complete the picture with a new book titled Islamic State in Australia, which was launched at the Lowy Centre this week. Welcome back to the program, Roger. Yeah, thanks very much, Geraldine. Could you underscore for us, please, just how important the outbreak of the civil war in Syria was uh, to explain maybe how suddenly so many Australians were attracted to radical Islam and participation in jihad. I mean, before this conflict, the attraction had existed, but uh, only just, I think. 
Yeah, listen, I think that's a very important um, point that you make there. One of the uh, issues about uh, radical islamism is it's been an ideology that's been around and has affected Australia for the um, past few decades, but it wasn't until uh, the civil war in Syria and then uh, as a result of that civil war, the ability of uh, firstly al-Qaeda and then what uh, later became Islamic State saw the opportunity to establish a physical territory that it not only uh, held but administered. And I think it was that uh, actual building of a physical um, a physical society that was the key to being able to attract so many people from uh, outside of the Middle East and in Western countries itself to go and not only build but defend this idealised Islamic society. Uh, very interesting. So that was the, the, the territoriality of a caliphate that people could understand. That's, that's the large part of it. But I think allied to that as well was the great advances in uh, social media and information technology that made not only your ability to um, hold and establish a territory, but also to attract people. It was the immediacy that mm -hmm. social media gave on top of the fact that you built a physical territory that made it so attractive. Because um, interestingly, um, Al-Qaeda never attracted to the same extent, did it? It was a bit more abstract, wasn't it? I mean, it certainly wasn't abstract, but, I mean, it's interesting to ponder why it didn't attract so many Australians. Yeah, I think it was more... more um, we kept on coming back to that idea about rather being... Uh, Al-Qaeda being a bit more theoretical in, in terms of what you want to achieve and looking um, at trying to attract people by explaining to them that they were playing the long game, that eventually things would um, would present themselves that we'd be able to build a society. Well, Islamic State essentially said that uh, Al-Qaeda are talking about this society. Well, we're building it at the mm -hmm. moment. And I think it was the reality rather than the, the mm -hmm. theory that Islamic State presented. Now, of the more than 200 Australians who did join IS, are there certain common characteristics that emerge? Do we have a picture now of the person most likely to travel and join IS? Yeah, listen, it's always very difficult to say what the uh, what the average person uh, is because everybody's an individual and they're attracted for uh, certain reasons. But there are certain general characteristics um, and some of those are that, you know, the average person was in their mid-20s, uh, 80% or more uh, male, largely from uh, Sydney or Melbourne, although obviously not exclusively, educated to about the same level as the average Australian, largely employed more or less to the same degree as Australians, but um, overwhelmingly in blue-collar jobs. Um, and I think the other, you know, the other uh, aspect of uh, this is... Um, the degree to which the small social circles dictated uh, the likelihood of somebody travelling. So about a quarter or a bit less than a quarter of people that we know of uh, were siblings and nearly 50% of people were related by blood or marriage. Really? So I think that's that's a kind of important um, indicator, I think, of a person's propensity to uh, do these kind of actions. Were they religious, particularly religious? Uh, it's always very difficult uh, when you talk about um, their degree of religiosity and people often confuse uh, degree of religious knowledge with uh, religiosity, that if you don't know a lot about 
the faith that you can't be of that faith. Um, lots of people might have failed a religious knowledge test, but they certainly felt themselves to be religious or their language was religious, their points of reference were all religious. So, yeah, at the centre of it, it was... Um, religion was at the centre of Islamic State's attraction. And just going back to that 50% related by blood or marriage, um, that's very significant, isn't it? So, were they rather closed off from broader members of the community who might have said, oh, look, that's a stupid idea to do that, to go away? I mean, you know, was there advice or warnings coming into those tight, are they, were they tight groups? Yeah, listen. I think that's part of the um, that's part of the issue when you have to uh, normalise what's you know, such a, um, a huge bizarre, decision. Mm. Well, and also a bizarre uh, idea that you oh, can build this mm. kind of religious caliphate uh, as well. Then um, you want to exclude people who are trying to dissuade you from doing that, and so that's why family groups or extended family groups become so important. But on top of that. It also presents challenges for security agencies because it's quite difficult to infiltrate groups that are so small or so tightly aligned with each other because of their blood or marital relations. So oh, I was just thinking of the of, of the wider mosque as well, though. You know, like whether I mean, we've just been talking to a Turkish man. You know, that, that's um, I presume this is, these are, are these sort of Shia. Of followers or Sunni followers, by the way, did you drill down to that? No, they're all they're all uh, Sunni followers, and in fact, they're um, oh, right. yeah, they uh, dislike uh, Shia they intensely. Like Shia. That's also one. That's also one of the characteristics. So, I mean, it, it's pertinent because I wonder whether the wider groups, you know, these quite broad circles, were drawn into the decision making and the fundraising. I mean, that's important for us to know too, isn't it? Yeah. Um, there's a reasonable amount of um, space in the book to uh, devoted to the ways in which people were able to uh, raise funds. Some of those, there was a bit of criminal activity. There was lots of uh, fundraising by uh, individuals who had no intention of this money going to charitable courses, or if they were going to do some kind of humanitarian assistance, it was part of the broader Islamic State uh, or Al-Qaeda effort. And so there were lots of people who were donating to charitable causes who thought it was going to a legitimate charity when, in fact, it wasn't. Um, and there is, you know, there's also a range of other uh, means by which Islamic State were able to uh, raise funds in Australia. But it is, um, it's the deception that was often exercised that people uh, willingly provided, uh, with all the best intentions, money for the relief efforts in Syria, but they're actually being misused uh, by individuals within Syria. These senior positions, if they did join Islamic State, the Australians? Yeah, listen, that's also um, an interesting issue when we talk about how do you define what a senior position is. People sometimes talk about, describe Australians who are there as commanders. But, you know, if you've been in the military, a commander can command one person or they can command 10,000 people. From what we know, um, probably the most senior Australian uh, or Australians in Islamic State, uh, one was eulogised as the head of the media department near the end of the... Was, he, was he the one who was the ducks of Punchbowl High? Well, that's what we uh, believe to be the case, but they've never been named. But given his background, that may be uh, mm. the case, and he's believed to have been killed. There are a couple of Australians who are senior in um, uh, the military wing, one who ran uh, several training camps and was eulogised after his death. And 
probably the most senior Australian uh, uh, was with the al-Qaeda uh, rather than Islamic State uh, branch in Syria. Look, final question, Roger. How, the people who've been brought back, the men, women and children, how are they acclimatising or reintegrating into Australian society? Did you, did you, could you follow that? Well, it's a little bit too early for that. That's uh, part of the book where you look uh, into the future, what this might mean. Uh, we're very early in the process. As we know, uh, only uh, a small number of women and a large number of children have been brought back. One of the one of the um, ways of trying to reintegrate the children, in particular, uh, into society and give them the best chance to reintegrate is to have some degree of anonymity. So it's very difficult, if not impossible, mm. to get information on the children and for the women who come back unless uh, they're charged and appear in court, it's also going to be difficult to get uh, information about exactly what occurred to them when they were in Syria. Mm. What, an, what a huge mountain for them to climb. Uh, Roger Shanahan, thank you very much indeed. There's lots more in your book, but I thank you for your time today. Okay, thanks very much, Geraldine. Roger Shanahan and his new book, Islamic State in Australia. Well, the federal government has failed to meet its targets uh, to reduce road deaths and serious injuries per crash have risen. Now, these were facts were revealed in the road safety plan launched by the federal government on Tuesday this week amid some very concerning fi figures about our safety. The plan recommits to reducing the annual number of fatalities by at least 50%, but there are serious concerns about how that can be achieved when targets were missed the last time. To be precise, why has our road toll hit a five-year high? Well, Toby Hagen might offer some thoughts. He's a veteran motoring, motoring writer and commentator, well-known to ABC radio audiences. Welcome, Toby. Thanks, Geraldine. Hello. Uh, good uh, to have you with us. The road safety plan was launched earlier this week by the federal government. What were the key takeaways as you read it? Well, look, they obviously want to reduce the road toll um, significantly, 30-odd percent by 2030. But at this stage, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of detail around it. And this is one of the things, obviously, a lot of the, uh, the road safety commitments have to be made by the states and territories. And uh, in the past, we haven't seen, um, haven't seen the sort of action that's required to meet the targets. Well, in, in fact, it is really surprising because it sort of crept into the newspapers and then I started looking at the figures and I was really quite amazed at this, I mean, this five-year high. Now, maybe COVID plays a role in that. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, you'll probably know far more, but Queensland was top of the list for numbers going up and the ACT had this extraordinary rise, actually, of 64% increase since 2021. Um, so how does one explain this? Well, I think you're right in terms of the COVID factor. Obviously, 2021, a lot of people weren't doing a whole lot of moving around the country. Um, since then, we've had a boom of travel, um, uh, particularly particularly throughout Australia. A lot of people, uh, a lot of people driving around the country, exploring the country, and I guess places like Queensland would be popular for that. The ACT, I'm not exactly sure why it's jumped so much there, but um, look, the reality is, I mean, 
road safety, occupant protection has been an enormous part of vehicle design now for 20 odd years. So we've seen enormous gains in terms of uh, in terms of keeping occupants safer. In more recent years, over the last five or 10 years in particular, we've seen a lot of driver assist systems. So systems to try and help avoid crashes in the first place. Um, and obviously we've seen road safety programs, but I think there's been an oversimplification of road safety. It's an extremely complex picture. We've got um, we've got so many facets of it that, uh, that you, you can't just come in with a simplified message. It needs to really look at every single facet of road safety if we want to get the gains that the federal government's outlined. Yes, well, I mean, some of the writing on this um, is quite interesting, uh, with some groups calling for more police crackdowns on what they describe as recidivist driving offenders who are banned, drunk or drug affected. And they claim that these are the biggest dangers on our roads rather than commuters who are busted by speed cameras on, in, on quotes, an industrial scale. This particular website I looked at, at less than 10 k's uh, over the speed limit. And now, is, is there, has there been a drift into looking at the wrong things in order to really um, get this uh, um, um, target achieved? I think absolutely. I mean, you only got to see that when the New South Wales government changed its speed camera policy a year or two ago. There was massive community outrage because the road safety benefits didn't flow through, but a lot of people ended up getting tickets for relatively minor offences. And as you point out, things like um, intoxication and so on, um, people who are unlicensed, all these sorts of issues that are arguably bigger issues, uh, I, I don't think get anything near the um, the level of scrutiny that they should. Uh, the other thing we don't see, finding more details on the statistics is extremely difficult. So you can get the top level statistics very easily. You can see how many fatalities they were, um, what they involved in terms of bikes, pedestrians, um, cars and, and so on. But finding out how many of them had crossovers. So, for example, was, was the person in uh, in high range speeding also intoxicated? Did they have not have a licence? Those sorts of things. Finding that level of detail is extremely difficult. So there's not the transparency there that we need to go and analyse these sorts of figures. There are other things that kick in, um, double demerits, for example, which you get in the ACT, Western Australia and New South Wales. Um, the rest of the states and territories don't bother with them because they realise they don't work. And again, that seems more like a PR exercise than a genuine road safety initiative. So, um, you know, I'd like to. It'd be. I think it'd be beneficial for the country to see a national approach to this rather than uh, rather than the state by state and delve into those deeper issues right down to things like driver training, which at the moment in Australia is pretty poor. Is it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, a, a novice driver, the first time they get to do 110 kilometres an hour is once they're off their L's or P's. Um, they don't get to do it with a with a, an experienced driver sitting next to them. So as a start, why don't we try that sort of thing? We never teach them things like um, uh, emergency braking. I mean, almost every driver throughout their driving career will have to do an emergency stop at some point. That's not included anywhere in the uh, in the driver training. It's all done about, um, you know, nice and fluffy stuff. And we teach them things like how far you can park from a bus stop, which in reality has got nothing to do with road safety. It's to do with, uh, with not getting a fine. So it's um, so there's all this stuff that I think we ignore in the driver training system. That, uh, that, and then the, 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 the odd part about it is you put these um, relatively novice drivers out on the road and then start finding them and telling them they're having too many crashes, which, again, we're not really ne necessarily teaching them. We're not arming them with the, uh, the, the skills they need uh, as a learner driver. Um, what about phone management? Listeners have come in with that in the text line. Uh, 
My sense is there's been real progress there, but I wonder what you think. Yeah, absolutely. I think there has been in terms of, uh, you know, there's obviously fairly stiff fines now for phone use. I guess one of the things that um, uh, that I find a little bit odd, when you look at speeding, for example, we have different levels. So high-level speeding, you get uh, you get a, high, a, a bigger fine and lose more demerits or accrue more de- demerit points. With phone phone offences, you generally don't. So this, you get the same fine whether you're doing 110 kilometres an hour or whether you're stopped at the set of lights. So I, I'd like to say I think I think something on that would be worthwhile, and also more working potentially working with car companies and so on to ensure that this uh, you know I, I guess use the technology, use the access to technology that we've got to try and stop uh, more phone use. But certainly phone use is an enormous one. I mean, taking your eyes off the road at freeway speeds is uh, is obviously potentially fatal. So it's, um, you know, that sort of thing I think needs a lot more work, but um, there has been, there certainly have been gains, but there's more, I think a lot more gains to be had in terms of not only distraction from phones, but distraction generally. It's, uh, you know, people mm-hmm. certainly, um, that, that level of distraction is, is one of the major things on the road. Uh, I wonder if we could just quickly, uh, the notion of new versus old cars, the average risk of death or serious injury in a crash to a driver of a vehicle manufactured in 2019, 25% less than that of a driver in a vehicle manufactured in 2010. So, I mean, these are, there's nothing easily done about that, is there? Well, no, the average age of a car on, the, on Australian roads is roughly 11 years. So we, mm. we do have a relatively old fleet in terms of um, okay. on, on global standards. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an enormous issue. You go back, you have a look at the, the YouTube videos of old versus new and, yeah, they don't, they don't scrub up well. Oh, good. No, I'm actually, I'm reading the clock wrong. You do have a minute, so you could... <laughs> you could so <laughs> I thought we were almost about to go. So what would you do if you were, uh, because this is a hugely important issue, which I never think is covered well enough, what, what would be the key things that you would try to do to get this road toll back to what I think we'd made real progress and now it's going backwards? Yeah, well, I think the I think the number one is driver training, is educating drivers. Um, I think you also need the public on on side with it, and in some cases, I think with uh, with the speed management policies, that hasn't been the case. Um, governments have pushed too far; they've uh, they've potentially attacked um, the wrong people on it. Um, and also push car companies. I mean, that, that's been done to some extent, but the technology's there. The, the, the technology and so on is there to improve um, Im- improve the sorts of vehicles that people are driving. Uh, I, I guess there's other incentives you can apply, which we've seen overseas in some jurisdictions where they, mm. they encourage the uptake of newer vehicles and that right. sort of thing can have an enormous, uh, enormous effect as well. We now do have to go. Toby, I'm very grateful. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Jeremy. We'll be back after the news. Hello again. Lovely to have you company. We'll have The Pick, the first edition of The Pick for 2023 and and some lovely suggestions of what to see, watch and hear uh, a little bit later in the show. Also, the trial of the Hong Kong 47. That opened in Hong Kong this week. Um, an important marker boy of the dramatic changes legally in Hong Kong. So that's all coming up in this hour. But first to the race that is on and that will for sure bleed into our daily lives. Let me outline the context. Imagine Googling a question, as you do, and being provided with a succinct answer instead of reams of links 
leading you to endless clicking. The newest headline-grabbing AI technology appears to be capable of exactly that. Now, the question is, which company will dominate this service and huge related revenue? It's advantage Microsoft's GPT chat right now because it seems capable of producing university standard essays and this could revolutionise how we search on the internet. But the formidable Google is now racing to position its own chatbot called The Bard. Initial testing earlier this week didn't exactly go to plan and the Chinese with their Baidu and Alibaba are hovering on the edges. Now, to talk us through some of the truly astonishing developments in this area, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Chris Manning to the program. He's an influential Australian right in the middle of Silicon Valley, Director of the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Hello there. Hello, delighted to be on the show, Geraldine. For those out there struggling to envisage how these chatbots might work, Maybe you could just explain it, please. Like if you typed into a a search engine, is the piano more difficult to learn than the guitar or is it safe to swim at Bondi Beach, what would they supply? They're just going to talk back and answer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually an, an stunning technological development. It amazes me how this is working quite successfully. So you put in that query, um, say, it's, is it safe to swim at Bondi Beach? It's going to write out some sentences. It'll say some things like, you know, sometimes the surf conditions at Bondi get dangerous, but throughout most of the year, thousands of people swim there every day without problems. One danger with these models is it's probably not going to be telling you about the surf conditions today, but you will certainly get So you get an context in, in some with, form of context, do you? In general, you'll get lots of relevant information. These models do know an amazing amount about different things in the world. And they don't get the super up-to-date information. Why? That's something that's actually changing really rapidly. So there was this big publicity blitz around ChatGPT at the end of last year. And so for ChatGPT and for the first iteration of these large language models, they were trained at some point in time and then what they knew about was frozen. So they never knew about what had happened in the last few weeks. But precisely what's being changed with some of these more recent announcements, so the recent um, Bing announcement or even for plans for what Google hopes to do, these models are going to be at the same time also looking out at the web for new information. And so it's possible they will be able to give current information, though I think that's still a work in progress at the moment. Okay, because, I mean, the overall story from what I can discern is that it's the battle to build the most accurate and effective search engine, an up-to-date search engine. That's really what's underway, isn't it? Yeah, but I think an important thing to think about is they won't be exactly search engines, but in many ways they might be something better. Search was the technology that we had, but most of the time it's not actually what people really want, right? If you like we call it search, but when you do something in search, a lot of the time you're not actually searching, right? You know, occasionally you might be searching, you might be thinking about buying a Breville espresso machine and you want to search for reviews and see what people are saying about them. But, you know, a lot of the time you know exactly what you want to do. You want to renew your driving license or something like that. And really you just want, you know, to get started on that transaction, right? That's not really 
search at that point. It's, you know, give me the information and I'd let me go for it. You know, there are lots of places where actually you want to do something. And these chat interfaces will be more directly enabling people to do tasks or get the answers to a question they have on the web without really doing the traditional kind of search where you're just being shown a, a page of different possibilities yes, to sort of then you, try and mill through. I do see very much what you're saying. I mean, have we made a lot of leaps in this area recently? How long has this type of AI been in development? This type of AI has been in, you know, there's different answers. One is there's been in development for 70 years. There's another answer, which it was about a decade ago that people started getting excited about neural nets again. But then, you know, about five years ago, kind of some of the modern ideas of how we build these huge models started to emerge. But then, you know, it was kind of only two years ago that the current ideas of how we could sort of use these models to provide these chat engines really emerged. So it's really been this sort of escalating progression of new ideas that are now coming to fruition. And now we've got this extraordinary race on. <laughs> it, it, it's quite something to watch with the absolute big boys and girls, um, you know, slugging it out now. What we're really intrigued by today is the impact on Google's business model. You know, Google showed off its its capacities of its chatbot, the Bard, and it made a big mistake. And the Alphabet share price just absolutely plummeted. Do you share the view that this type of technology will revolutionise the search engine? And that's China and the West, as it were. Yeah, it's an exciting time because I think absolutely there's going to be enormous change, new possibilities, new entrants in the space are likely. And so rather than the kind of fixed state that we seem to have been in for the last decade, we should be expecting dramatic changes. But certainly there are big questions as to how the business model of search or in general information finding on the web um, is going to work because the traditional model was that through very efficient huge-scale computer computers in the cloud, the cost of serving individual searches was very small and the amount of money that could be made from advertising on relevant um, searches was pretty large and hence there were huge mountains of money to be made. It was kind of like um, in the glory days of newspapers before the web. Mm. Um, whereas what we're looking at with this new technology is these um, chat systems are much, much more expensive to run. They're doing orders of magnitude more computation. So there's probably, you know, 100 times plus as much computation happening to provide these interfaces. So that's a cost. And then the question is, on the other side, it doesn't at first sight seem as if it'll be as easy to sprinkle ads in as you did in the old search page, you know, oh, it's a thing to think about creatively, you know, in the old days of radio, the presenter used to do themselves mm. speaking to sell a product. Yeah, maybe the chat, the chat bot can do that. But you know, it's not clear that you'll be able to stick five ads on a page the way that people do currently. That's so interesting. Um, just let me tell listeners that uh, Professor Chris Manning is with us. Uh, he's from um, Stanford and a very, very well-placed Australian at the core of Silicon Valley watching these amazing developments. So, I mean, two questions. How soon will this type of technology you're describing be available for, say, everyday users? I mean, will we still get links 
Will that be something of the past, like <laughs> last year? I mean, it seems at the moment the model that most people are trying first is trying to give you both so that you can either have traditional search or you can have the chat interface. Maybe that's a go slowly and see how it works out approach and isn't a crazy one given how the world has been for the last 20 or so years. But, you know, as I was saying before, I think the vast majority of times you just want to get to a particular website you know or you want to do some transaction like you want to buy some more nappies or whatever you need at that moment and you don't really need search results at all. So you could actually imagine a, a future in which the default will be you'll be talking to your web chat agent and it'll be doing something for you or taking you somewhere or giving you the answer to some question and you'd only get traditional search results if you actually said you know, show me a list of reviews of, I guess, Breville espresso machines is yeah. my example from yeah. before. Well, see, I might Google, I mean, classically what I do is say, show me the latest good writing on, say, the Turkey earthquake. Right. Now, I don't know. you want a list of sources. Then I want a list of sources. That's a search. You'd say that is a search still. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one analyst told the Financial Times recently that this new technology had left Google facing the classic innovator's dilemma, and that's that, you know, Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen's um, book that talked about why industry leaders, like something as, you know, <laughs> seemingly impenetrable, indomitable as uh, Google, might fall prey to fast-moving upstarts. Now, I wonder whether you think that might be the case here. Well, a time of disruption is always a time of opportunity for the people who aren't the leading player. But I do think it's also important to emphasize that Google has been a huge player in this new neural model space. And indeed, you know, it was researchers at Google that invented the model, the transformer model that was so dominant in allowing this to happen. So it'd be a mistake to count them out for yet. So are they in panic mode? I mean, that's one of the headlines in at the press here, that Google's in panic mode. It sort of dialed code red last year. And I did read that one of the uh, motives of Microsoft and their um, the new chat GPT was to flush Google out before they were quite ready. Um, well, I'm not aware of everything that's going on inside, but I think it's probably reasonable to say there are a lot of conversations and urgency right at the moment, yes. Mm. Look, let's just look at a couple of other aspects of it. this. Google has said, and I'm quoting them, we have long been focused on developing and deploying AI to improve people's lives. We believe AI is foundational and transformative technology that is incredibly useful for individuals, businesses and communities. And it said that it would need to, and I'm again quoting them, to consider the broader societal impacts these innovations can have. What are they worrying about? So there are a lot of things to worry about with these models as well. Um, that all of these models are trained from enormous amounts of texts that are found on the web. And if you've spent a fair bit of time trawling different web forums, you probably realize there's a lot of text on the web that's not very savory. So these models very easily pick up lots of bad biases and opinions. So they can very easily be sexist, racist, um, any other mm. um, is that you'd prefer the humans you talk to not to be. Um, and so while 
you want to be careful as to what, if you're um, a major company, you want to be careful as to what language your search agent is then going to be speaking to your users. So there are worries of that sort. And then that's one thing to deal with. But I think perhaps the biggest thing to deal with is these models behave the way that people not so infrequently confuse men of doing in mansplaining, that whatever question you ask, they're going to give a really confident sounding answer. (laughs) And well, if they know the answer, it is pretty sure it'll be the right answer. But if they don't know the answer, They'll just make stuff up and say it equally confidently. So they don't don't deal in doubt. No. I mean, in some sense, you know, they're saying words as to, according to the model, what is the most plausible answer. And if they know the answer, the most plausible answer is the correct answer. And if they don't know the answer, they just put in what's plausible. So the model doesn't know where you, Geraldine, went to university. It'll probably say, I don't know, that you went to the University of Sydney. And it'll say that as if it's just a fact. It won't say, oh, I don't... Mm. really don't know, but let me guess. Um, so, mm. you know, so there, there are major issues with then sort of just people believing what it's putting out as the answer without cross-checking it. Now, that's in some sense not a new problem because, you know, when you're going along the stores and somewhere says it has the best Thai food in Sydney, you don't necessarily want to believe that. Mm. But, you know, it's going we've tended to review a a lot of sort of web search as a fairly trusted source where you're going to certainly want to be more cautious in believing some of the answers you're getting. Well, what about regulation then to try to limit disinformation? Can you imagine... Does that have to follow pretty fast? Can it? It's certainly a possibility. And in the cases of deliberate disinformation, misinformation, you know, I think it's an area where there should be more regulation. To the extent that this is a new technology and companies are trying their best to build models that answer as many questions correctly as possible but sometimes the models screw up, as in that um, Google demo that wasn't everything that they maybe hoped it would be. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like you should be being punished for um, the fact that your model isn't perfect. Mm. I'm having a stop the world, I want to get off moment listening to you, <laughs> I've got to say. <laughs> anyway, final question. The Chinese company Baidu and also Alibaba... Uh, Jack Ma's company, old company, it says it's also completing internal testing of a chat GPT style project called ErnieBot. So, I mean, it really is off and running, isn't it? It's a gigantic race underway. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they're very active and good um, large Chinese companies building AI systems as well. And there are new players. There are several smaller startup companies trying to offer similar services, including U.com and Perplexity.ai. So, yeah, there's clearly going to be a whole big new round of competition. Oh, well, Chris Manning, we will no doubt speak again if we're still still standing. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I do appreciate your time. 
Great talking to you, Geraldine. Chris Manning, he's the director of the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and a rather amusing uh, text came in. I asked about aerofoil lift. ChatGPT got the, got the answer wrong, then told me an aircraft cannot fly inverted, question mark. Got Descartes' theory of circulation, Galileo on the tides, plus three other matters totally wrong. I could only get archaic and inaccurate replies to any non-trivial queries. That's Ian Batty, who's um, got a Master of Education behind him, so quite keen to know about this particular topic. Look, I think there's a lot, lot more to come on this story. And look, can I just say before I go, we also got, this is typical Radio National text line, Nigel Thompson from Queanbeyan. Good morning, Jorian. I worked for more than a decade on road safety-related policy in the ACT government. This is after our story before the break. The recent 50% plus increase in road deaths in the Territory shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who knows anything about statistics and sample sizes. Road fatalities in the ACT remain low in both absolute and relative terms and can vary greatly from year to year, typically in a range between 5 and 20 deaths. And I think there were 16 in this year that it said it had gone up so far. All right. Thank you for that, Nigel. And we will be changing our focus and talking about Hong Kong next. Yes, now to a court case that matters, and you'll probably hear far more of it before long. It's known as the Hong Kong 47, and it got underway this week. The context is the widespread pro-democracy disturbances back in 2018-19 in Hong Kong. They resulted in hundreds of protesters, activists and former opposition lawmakers being arrested and imprisoned there since new national security laws were brought into law in 2020. Some of those people are now part of this so-called 47. Benny Tai, for instance, who was a professor of law at the University of Hong Kong, and pro-democracy advocate Joshua Wong, now 26, who became a prominent activist at the tender age of 14. Twelve of the 47 were elected lawmakers, and they'd often used their presence in the legislature to protest China's encroachment on Hong Kong's autonomy. To tell us about what happened during the first week of the trial and develop our understanding of the proceedings, I'm pleased to welcome James Griffiths. He's been in Hong Kong from 2014 onwards. He's the Asia correspondent for the Canadian newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Hi, thanks for having me. Explain to us, would you please, exactly what the 47 people have been accused of doing um, so that we can understand it, because it's scheduled to go on for about 90 days, isn't it, this case, these cases? Yes, uh, I mean, and that's, you know, 90 business days and assuming there's no delays or suspensions of the trial. So, you know, this could be going on for months, if not the rest of the year, this trial. Um, the... All of the defendants have been charged with uh, conspiracy to commit subversion under the national security law. Uh, the prosecutors accused them of trying to subvert state power and ultimately bring down the government uh, through this plan, which was um, kind of centered around a primary election, which was held in 2020 for the pro-democracy camp ahead of legislative elections due to take place later that year. Um, Can and, I just you know, ask you, sorry. that term primary election, what do you mean by that? Because that's not a term that Australians are, are, are comfortable with, I don't think. The 
pro-democracy camp here is a collection of various uh, political parties and, and activists um, who have, you know, competed in various elections over the years. Um, and, and they've always, statistically, they've always won a, a, a majority of the vote. Um, there are various kind of structural reasons that that, 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 that they didn't get a majority in, in the city's legislature. Um, but there is also a degree to which that they compete against each other for, for that um, pro-democracy vote. Um, and the idea with this primary was it came off the back of a, um, a local elections in 2019 where the pro-democracy camp absolutely swept the board and won massive majorities. And that's that was in a system that was much more democratic. And the idea was that if they had a primary and they chose oh, candidates to stand for the legislature and people were able to vote, the pro-democracy camp were able to pick who they wanted ahead of time, that that would then focus the vote in the main elections and give them a much better chance of winning, which, which is already still a very slim chance because of the structural issues at play, but would give them the best possible chance of winning a majority in the parliament in, in legislative right. elections. So it was, to, it was to pick the best candidates, um, but it was part of a plan, wasn't it? Which, of course, the prosecutors have said in this uh, trial of the 47 uh, was really a, a broader plan designed to bring, um, to undermine the Hong Kong completely and to, to in effect, bring chaos to the whole system. Yeah, so the the government regards this plan as, as very sinister and, and the, its its intentions as, as very kind of underhanded and, well, and it would argue illegal. Um, but, you know, from a pre-national security law perspective and when they were drafted, they were drafted by uh, Penny Tai, as you mentioned, who's a very distinguished um, Hong Kong law professor. They were constitutional. Um, quite a, Even so, some pro-government figures have said that this plan was constitutional because it it, it relied on, you know, things within the constitution that if you have a majority in LegCo, in the legislature, you could, say, refuse to endorse a government budget, uh, you could refuse to endorse certain candidates for office, things like that. And then if there's enough things like that, you can get a no confidence vote in the in Hong Kong's leader and you can force the leader to resign. That is within the city's constitution, that is completely legal that they were trying to do. And this was a kind of message to um, the, to voters as, as a way of, you know, take part in this primary, back the pro-democracy candidates, we will use this means to force the government to resign or give us certain concessions related to the 2019 pro-democracy protest movement. And, you know, so this was, this was a kind of really big swing to try and get the, uh, the goals of that movement that were not, you know, achieved on the streets. Um. Now, I mean, the case is very important because it involves many of the leading lights, doesn't it, of, of Hong Kong's democratic movement. Have you have you been inside the courtroom? Can you tell us what it's like? Yeah, so I was in court on Monday for the first day of this case. Um, there have been pre-trial hearings uh, in the months leading up to this, but this was the first formal day of the, of the trial. Um, and, and about um, 20 or so defendants were there of, of the uh, of the 47. That's because the majority of them have actually already um, pleaded guilty. Um, so the mo most people who were in court on Monday were the uh, 16 who were continuing to plead not guilty, two who had changed their, their pleas from not from not guilty, too guilty, um, and then a handful of, of observers. So uh, Joshua Wong was there, um, Claudia Mo was there, former former lawmaker. They'd come to kind of watch the trial, even though they've already pled guilty. Um, so it's a bit, but you know, these were very very prominent figures who you know 
historically we're used to seeing on the streets or even seeing in the legislature now we're seeing behind you know behind a glass screen in a dock mm. can what's the logic do you think behind their pleading guilty Joshua Wong for instance he's pleaded guilty hasn't he um, shorter jail terms presumably is that the idea yeah it's difficult to tell because the the ability of the defendants and the, the people charged in this trial to, to communicate has been very limited. There's been reporting bans um, that are only lifted late last year. There's been, you know, they're very, you know, they're barred from talking to the press when they are bailed. Most of them haven't had bail for two years. So, so, so you know, we have to, it's pure speculation, but the, the, the feeling is that, you know, they... You know, the, the book has been thrown at them. They've decided that this isn't necessarily worth fighting. May as well plead guilty, see if that will result in the lesser sentences. This is under the national security law where sentences can, can go up to life in prison. So, you know, if you can get <laughs> as far away from that as possible, there's a good reason to do so. Um, and there also may be a desire to, by pleading guilty, potentially protect some of the other people if you take a, you know, if you plead guilty and take a take responsibility for, for more of this than other people. Oh, so that the, in theory, the people who've pleaded not guilty might be considered lesser parties. Exactly. And, but again, that's, that's speculation and we still have to wait to see what the, how the prosecution kind of sorts these various defendants because, you know, it will try, they, they've previously said that they will argue that some of them are, um, you know, are kind of more active participants in, in the conspiracy and some of them were just, um, you know, were kind of almost bystanders or, or were taking part in it, didn't necessarily understand, but they haven't exactly explained you know, who fits into what camp. And just to reiterate, as you said, all of these people who've pleaded guilty have been already two years in jail because bail hasn't been granted. Um, so they, we just don't know how much longer they might be in jail, people like Joshua Wong, for instance. No, and and they they did try and stage a, an attempt um, after pleading guilty. There, there, was a, there was a court case to um, whether they could force the judges to to sentence them before the rest of the trial and um, but they, that was unsuccessful and they were told you'll have to wait until the rest of the trial's finished which like i said could take you know at least six months if not the rest of this year um so it could be a long time before they case. and you know for some of them they're potentially facing you know three years in prison so, so they may actually end up serving either the entirety of their time or potentially even more than more of their time waiting to hear their, their sentence. Mm. Now, the three judges who are hearing the cases have been handpicked by the government. Can you tell us anything about them? Uh, yeah, these, these judges are from a panel of uh, national security judges who are chosen by Hong Kong's leader, John Lee. Um, you know, that, the, the government would argue that is more about uh, security and it's more about ensuring that they're not, uh, you know, vulnerable to foreign influence or something like that. Um, you know, critics say this is the government stacking stacking the deck further in its favour by picking judges it knows that are sympathetic. Um, you know, the, the judges are somewhat difficult to read. There were there was a couple of stern admonishments during the, the hearing on, on Monday um, when one of the judges, you know, told off the, the small audience that were in, in the in the court for laughing at a defendant's kind of joke that they made and kind of said, he, you know, very sternly said, this is a solemn occasion. Um, and then he also later threatened to expel one of the defendants for, for constantly speaking up and said that he would make them uh, watch the rest of the case from behind closed doors. So, you know, these are not, these are no-nonsense judges who are, you know, known to be kind of 
tough in, in how they handle these cases. It is interesting, though, you know, I think this is um, Eurasia Review uh, talked about um, one of the defendants, Lung Kwok Hung, um, said he had nothing to answer for, pleading not guilty. It's not a crime to act against totalitarianism. totalitarianism. Uh, and so, I mean, obviously there's a group of them who are certainly not moderating their language, who see themselves as still continuing in its own way the sorts of uh, protests they had on the streets. No, and, and you know, and there was a certain, you know, this is speculation because you're, you're reading into people's facial expressions and, and how they react to things in court, but there was, you know, there was some eye-rolling with, from, within the defences, within among the defendants from when they were hearing what the prosecution was saying, some kind of laughing at it. You know, even one of the defendants on Monday who changed his plea to guilty, you know, he's in doing so, this is Ung Kim Wai, a former district councillor, in doing so, he said, I, you know, I failed to commit subversion against the totalitarian regime. And he said, you know, so I plead guilty to, to failing to do to do that. Um, so there is a certain degree of defiance. But, you know, it's it's a defiant, it's a very controlled defiance. And most of these people after after these outbursts have to go back and sit in a prison cell. So it's, it's a very kind of limited freedom they have. So, look, this is a, I haven't seen anyone write this, but is there any um, licence or any ability for these judges to find some of these or sentence people to exile, which, of course, is not a very modern thing at all, but a lot of the pro-democracy people have already left Hong Kong, and I'm just wondering whether that is some way of dealing with this. Has anybody ever even raised that? No, it's, it, and that's not within the, the national security law. That you know that there is a good chance. I think that some of the people, if they're given lower sentences, and especially if they're given three years, which is kind of the minimum sentence, that, that and will you know very promptly be released, given how long this case has taken. You know, I think they would widely be expected to, to leave Hong Kong after that, given you know both given the potential danger of future prosecution and also the degree to which they would be limited here in, in what they could do. You know, there's, they can't run for office. They can't really work as activists anymore. It, you know, being here, I think, would be very limiting. And so I think it wouldn't be a surprise if they left, as many of their colleagues already have. Mm. Um, you have written for the Globe and Mail that many of the imprisoned activists have been put through a de-radicalisation program. Can you tell us about this, please? Yeah, so this is the um, former protesters that were that were arrested after 2019, mostly mostly young people um, who, who engaged in what the government describes as quote black clad violence. Um, so the kind of more more kind of riot tinged um, protests of uh, 2019, um, and that there has been this long standing um, de radicalisation uh, program within prisons that that that. Prisoners can volunteer to take take part, but you know, prisoners, ex-prisoners that I've spoken to have said that there is a certain kind of pressure to that. You know, they're told you'll you'll get a shorter sentence, you'll get you know time off for good behaviour if you take part in this. Um, you know, I've spoken to some ex ex-prisoners who have described it as a pretty heavy-handed propaganda. You know. We should be grateful for what China has done for Hong Kong. Uh, the Brits never gave Hong Kong democracy, so why should why should China? Things like that. Um, and you know, but when it comes to the actual details of this, um, I, I spent most of last year um, fighting a freedom of information. Uh, 
attempt with with the government we took it to the ombudsman who's the highest authority in hong kong on this issue and we ultimately were defeated the government argued that releasing these materials that it had shown you know convicted felons was was uh you know against national security to, to show that to the public and basically in in their explanation of that they they kind of admitted that they think there would be a backlash if people were to see this material and it would reduce its effectiveness mm. look does this effectively a signal that the national security law fundamentally ends the notion of one country, two systems, and that really things have irrevocably changed in terms of what is available to public protest or to dissent? The Hong Kong government would argue very strongly that that, that one country, two systems is healthy and well. There the uh, Leader John Lee is currently traveling around the world promoting Hong Kong again after we've opened up after, you know, over two years of COVID controls. And, you know, this is part of what makes Hong Kong unique and all of that. Um, but it's but it's absolutely true that the the uh, the freedoms that were in place in 1997 and and the, even the political system, the ele- electoral system, has changed dramatically since the passage of the national security law. Not just because of that law, but also because of um, an election law that's passed since then. You know, it's very very difficult now for people to protest, for people to stand for office, and for people to kind of criticise the government in a, in a kind of safe way. So so you know, this is a very different Hong Kong than it was uh, before 2019. Um, And, I mean, in some ways one could say that that was obviously going to be, that was in the purview, wasn't it, of China to do and they don't seem to have um, paid a great price. And I might add, I read that there's an enormous amount of money flowing into Hong Kong. So in in itself it hasn't paid a big price (laughs) except for loss of democracy. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of the kind of business that Hong Kong has lost in recent years is being made up um, through through um, you know flows from across the, across the border with China. Um, Hong Kong is is like I said, John Lee's at, at, out of the city at the moment. He's in the Middle East trying to get um, connections there. The the um, security minister even said, I think today that that oh well, while we're in the Middle East, you know, we're not getting questions about the national security law. People here aren't worried about it, um, which we you know might <laughs> might wonder well what type of uh, governments they have there that aren't concerned about this. But, um, you know, so, so the, the Hong Kong kind of... So is, all that foreign direct investment, it's really not coming from democratic countries, isn't it? No, and, 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 and there has been kind of a pivot since the national security law and since the protests, took, you know, away from engagement with the West. You know, this one, once was, you know, seen as the kind of bridge between China mm. and, and, and mm. the West um, to engagement with, you know, maybe other parts of the world that aren't so concerned about about these human rights issues. Okay, well, you have quite a job ahead of you. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us right now. Thank you. James Griffiths. He's from the Globe and Mail and he's their Asia correspondent. Well, coming up, top tips on the pick. Yes, the pick is back for 2023 with great recommendations from people working in the broad fields of history and international and current affairs. They sift through all that's out there to give you some of the special gems to read, watch and listen to. This month, the very busy Stephen Jedgetts joins us in between filing stories about the Asia-Pacific. He's the ABC's foreign affairs reporter. Hi, Stephen. 
Hello, Geraldine. And staying in the region of Southeast Asia, Dr Amrita Mali is an historian at Flinders and the ANU, and she's a senior policy advisor in international development. She's your second guide to the top tips on the pick. Hi there, Amrita. Hi, Geraldine. So in Australia, the Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, recently was mocked in some quarters, but most definitely not mocked in others for writing this essay about the economy. And we concentrated on it last week in Saturday Extra. You have delved, by contrast, into another interesting tilt at windmills, a 178-page book written by Anwar Ibrahim, the Prime Minister of Malaysia. What's it called and what's it about? Well, it's called Script, uh, and it is indeed a full-length book. And uh, Anwar released it in October last year, which was around a month before uh, the election that made him Prime Minister. Is it a manifesto or, because I've been reading about it, it's very interesting. It's sort of amusing about a better world, a sort of framework for resilience, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's a combination of things, and he quite explicitly says it isn't a manifesto as such. Uh, Basically what it does is it outlines in English uh, the ideas that form his new Malaysia Madani framework, uh, which is Anwar's government's slogan for a new civic values campaign. Uh, And the title in English is an acronym that stands for Sustainability, Compassion, Respect, Innovation, Prosperity and Trust. It's called Script script for a Better Malaysia. It's quite cute. It is. (laughs) And so these uh, ideas are discussed in the book as fields of action uh, or a framework consisting of these drivers, he refers to them as drivers, uh, for building a viable, quote, viable, dynamic and inclusive Malaysian future. Uh, And it's basically, it's a series of musings, as you say. And who does he draw on to write this? Like what, yes, are there big sort of intellectual prophets whom he draws on? Yeah, well, this is a very interesting uh, feature of the book in the sense that it's kind of a showcase of everything that Anwar's been reading over his many decades of thinking as an activist, intellectual and politician. So it was written in collaboration with the Centre for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies, uh, which is an interesting outfit led by a renowned British Muslim intellectual, Ziauddin Sardan, who was Anwar's education advisor, actually, in the late 1980s. Uh, So since then, he's been a writer, a broadcaster, a critic, even a human rights commissioner. uh, And listeners might know him as the editor of the quarterly journal Critical Muslim. Uh, And so this centre for post-normal studies is his consultancy firm, basically. Um, And then on top of that close collaboration, the book also draws on, you know, the thinking of a range of Malaysian and international intellectuals. So, you know, economists like Onku Aziz and Jomo Sundaram, there's a sociologist, Syed Hussein Alatas, and, you know, international leading lights like sociologists like Zygmunt Bauman and an Australian historian, Anthony Milner. Anthony, oh, Tony Milner, oh, he's a friend of the programme, yeah. right. And mm. even going right back to Antonio Gramsci, which, of course, is the Italian intellectual who's influenced, well, you know, so many people uh, of, of yeah. a slightly progressive, I was going to say left, but it's actually not that. It's a complex, his, his um, legacy, I'd say. Well, certainly his legacy has been used and, and, you know, deployed by all sorts of different types of figures. And, and in this case, they paraphrase Gramsci um, in, in terms of explaining what they mean by post-normal times. So basically, they refer to these times as a kind of an in-between period where the old ideas are dying and the new ones have not emerged, uh, which is a you know, famous Gramscian formulation. Um, and so in the meantime, in this in-between space, uh, we're, you know, left with, with monsters, really. And so in, in Anwar's uh, book, these monsters are things like mismanagement, corruption, cronyism, uh, etc. And it's it's also really interesting the way it draws on another genre of literature, which I found uh, really 
you know, really curious. So there's a, a genre, I guess, of crisis literature, mm. um, and listeners might be familiar with Adam Tooze, uh, also another um, writer called Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who's um, written books on, uh, you know, the black swan phenomenon. And, and his book, Anti-Fragile, is basically a prescription for, you know, a series of personal and political attitude adjustments to build our resilience, because essentially we may live out our lives in a time of endless rolling crises. Uh, and so and, it's very frank about that. And what are the practical ideas he suggests? Well, essentially, he doesn't really sound very prescriptive in the book. He talks about floods, climate change, the pandemic, poverty, inequality, gig economy, you know, all sorts of things that are frankly, you know, really irritating Malaysians in, in, in lots of different ways and, and talks about, you know, a few loose ideas in terms of how best to begin a process. So he's really talking about guiding uh, and I suppose convening uh, a discussion where Malaysians talk about how to repair their exhausted society after, you know, the political ructions of, of the last few years. Uh, and so it sounds like it's essentially a prescription for a series of workshops. Uh, and basically he will guide Malaysians through figuring out uh, what to do. And I think one of the most interesting things about it is it's not a pitch for democratic reforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't talk about a democratic transition, although it does talk about, you know, democratic values. But ultimately, I think it, it's trying to shake off the constraints created by those expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, of course, you know, Anwar is leading a government made up of long-term frenemies. Uh, and they are presumably going to lead this process of figuring out uh, just how much Malaysia will change and in which direction. Well, I suppose that's the fascinating thing is, is whether Malaysians do take it up and, and use various parts of it to to move Indeed. forward. Uh, I mean, mm. Stephen, I, I think that you have not been thinking quite like this. Uh, you've been wedged between children's books at bedtime and Department of Foreign <laughs> Affairs reports. I don't know how much extra time you've got for this sort of um, good intellectual, you know, playing. Um, what are you reading? Well, I've I've chosen something a little bit different because you're right, I do read an awful lot of foreign policy uh, documents <laughs> during my working hours. And then when I get home, uh, I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old. So there's an endless trail of, uh, of picture books for the, for the little one and then um, a slightly more advanced <laughs> books, but still kids' books, obviously, for the five-year-old. So uh, when I finally get to pick up a book for myself, it's in that sort of 15-minute window before I collapse uh, into bed or when I'm about to fall asleep. Uh, but the, the book that I've been working my way through rather slowly at the moment is absolutely gripping. It's actually a, a, a bit of, if you like, popular history. Uh, it's called Rubicon, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Roman Republic by oh, Tom yes. Holland, who's not only a great uh, writer, but also does a brilliant podcast and is, is a wonderful broadcaster as well. He's he's very much a, a man that has the, the capacity to bring uh, the ancient past to life and to make the, the, the characters who inhabit it or which in, who, who inhabited it uh, and bring them into the present in, in really compelling ways. And, and Rubicon is just a great read because um, in, many, in many ways it traverses pretty familiar territory. Uh, in particular, he looks at the, uh, the, the Roman Republic. So pretty much, you know, the sort of, I guess, the sort of 200 years or so leading up to uh, Julius Caesar and then, of course, Augustus uh, bringing the, uh, the Roman Republic to an end and establishing uh, imperial rule. Um, and it's just a fascinating account of the way that Roman institutions developed and then were put under enormous strain uh, up until the up until the, the early sort of imperial period. Uh, the way that those institutions uh, splintered in many ways um, under under the pressure 
uh, of uh, of these competing enormous personalities, uh, the way that things that were, were for a, a few hundred years unfathomable, such as people leading Roman legions into Rome, suddenly mm. became acceptable. Not first with Julius Caesar, of course, but uh, with uh, with uh, Sulla before him, about fifty or thirty or forty years earlier. Uh, and look, the cast of characters in this is just dazzling. You know, not just Augustus and Julius Caesar, Pompey, Cicero, Sulla, all of these familiar ones, but also the, the cast of characters who are slightly less well-known but are equally Look, compelling. You're, you're preaching to the converted here. We're all Tom Holland fans at Saturday Extra and um, um, the rest is history, I think, is mentioned about every second pick. Uh, so, look, yes. thank you very much uh, for that. Now, I want to move on to what you both are watching. What has you glued to the screen, Stephen? Well, I, this is terrible, but I had to. I had to go with Encanto, which is not <laughs> which is not my pick. It is my children's pick. Uh, but I have almost no time to watch anything that my kids are not watching at the moment. So, it's a yeah, it's a it's an animated fantasy. Uh, and when we were all effectively confined to the house uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, with uh, COVID. Encanto was one of the things that we put on, and I just found it utterly enrapturing. Uh, it's Disney. It's a it's a musical. It's probably aimed for slightly older kids than my kids. Though my five year old loved it. My two year old was sort of entranced, but was a little bit young for it. Uh, it's all about a family called the Madrigals uh, who uh, live in the mountains in a place called Encanto, which is essentially a a sort of fantasy realm created solely by the matriarch of the family through an enchanted candle that creates it when uh, they come under a severe uh, threat. Um, and it's beautifully, like the score is entrancing. Um, you know, uh, there's one hit from it. Um, we don't talk about Bruno, which I think might be one of the most popular songs of the last year, full stop, not just for kids. Uh, the characters are wonderful. The animation is dazzling. Yes, it is hackneyed and predictable in parts. That's unavoidable. I, I found it genuinely okay, touching. lovely. I'll, I'll, I'll put that on my little list. Okay, now I'm ready for your pick. You say it's time to return to what? Canada. All my life, grinding all my life. Hustle pay the price. All my life, grinding all my life. They came from the water. They have superhuman strength. He's coming for the surface world. That can't be good. Yes, that's an excerpt from Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Amrita, is that the is this the second Black Panther movie? Is it? It is. Yeah, it's the second film. Um, the first one came out in 2018, and um, of course, both of them are based on the Marvel Comics character, the Black Panther. And what is it that really gets you in? Well, basically, I really enjoy the way both the films imagine um, these autonomous, never-colonised societies. So, you know, in the in the first film, we were introduced to Wakanda, which is on the African continent, um, and its location is kept hidden by impassable mountains and jungles, but also by these high-tech screens and holographic projections. And essentially, these things work together to keep it safe from American and European colonial power. Uh, it's also protected by the Black Panther, who was a prince of Wakanda, uh, who ingested a herb enriched by vibranium, um, which gave him superhuman powers. And, you know, as far as the Wakandans know, at the end of the last film, it is the only place you can find this thing called vibranium, which is the strongest metal in the world. It's bulletproof uh, and it can actually deflect uh, kinetic energy and high energy 
glass so it can deflect attacks. Um, and in Wakandan society, it's the various applications of vibranium that make it so wealthy um, and advanced. Um, now, in the second film, uh, there's a twist to this whole story, which is that the Wakandans discover that there's another society, this time under the ocean, uh, that also escaped colonization. And uh, in uh, in this case, it's a kind of um, um, a pan sort of um, Latin American, uh, pan Mesoamerican and South American identity that is um, the source material for this new civilization. Right. Uh, now, it also has, yeah, and it also has vibranium, um, which really surprises the Wakandans. So they've got um, a competitive. Because, you know, that's right. And and it too, this society as well called Talakan, uh, has also relied on the mineral to maintain its autonomy. Um, now, this society is ruled by a king who ultimately launches an attack on Wakanda because, uh, you know, he tries to convince the Wakandans to help him take revenge on the colonizers. And when Wakanda basically declines, uh, the film is then led through uh, a discussion about how to deal with the legacy of colonial conquest. So in this sense, it's very much like the last film where there was a, a kind of a contest between two princes or two, okay. you know, potential rulers of Wakanda, uh, one of whom wanted to lead a revolution against the world order, which was, you know, obviously shaped and created by the colonial conquest of most of the world. Um, but the ultimately the Wakandan prince uh, argued okay. for a, a peaceful, autonomous development. Uh, and so in the end, he won and became uh, the ruler of Wakanda. We, we will leave people thinking about that. It's obviously quite thought-provoking. And I want to move briefly to the world of audio because you've both got some interesting picks here. Uh, Stephen, you include the Seneca podcast, which I just heard about this week. What is it and why do you listen to this series? Well, Seneca, someone once compared it to Seinfeld for people who were sort of really deeply embedded in the sort of China-America pod or slash foreign policy podcast space in the sense that it started well before the uh, sort of plethora of other foreign policy slash China podcasts that are, uh, that are, that are buzzing around at the moment. Uh, look, it's basically a, you know, roughly weekly or so podcast that comes out every week on China. That's all it is. It's largely hosted by a guy called Kaiser Guo, who's uh, an American um, who spent a long time in China and who in some ways straddles the two cultures. Um, and they've been going for a good decade or so with just the most excellent weekly chats on what is happening within China. They draw heavily on, yes, a lot of academics, but not just academics, other people, journalists, authors, uh, people from the World Bank, multilateral institutions, foreign policy specialists, just trying to break down exactly what is happening in China today, in particular, its implications for foreign policy. Now, it's uh, not one that many people who are sort of deep in the world of foreign policy probably haven't heard about before, but but for a lot of people who are very interested in foreign policy, uh, but who aren't specialists, they may not have heard of it before. So I just point them towards it because it's just an excellent weekly account of contemporary China done really well. That's exactly what I heard put. Okay, now, uh, you're, Amrita, you're suggesting the latest version of the computer game Civilizations, which was a fabulous game, Civilizations 6. Uh, what does it offer? Because it's had a, a, a great long legacy, of course, Civilizations. 
Yeah, well, one thing it offers is um, an alternative to reading foreign policy white papers. Um, you know, uh, it, it is a it is a way of processing, um, you know, ideas about the world and the world system and and how uh, civilizations compete for position within that system. Uh, you know, which which also goes to show that you know there's there's a very um, widespread sort of popular mode of interacting with ideas about um, you know the world uh, that uh, really are provided in these sorts of cultural products and and actually. Yeah, that's my criticism of it. Even though it's a great game, I've been really enjoying it. It actually has the effect of socialising people into the idea that the world consists of discrete civilizations um, that don't borrow from each other. Each one has its own lane, uh, and ultimately they have to compete um, for primacy. So, you know, the way it works is you start by founding a city, uh, and you work through a series of decisions about how you're going to expand and prosper, a bit like Wakanda, really. So you develop basic technologies to start with, like animal husbandry, archery. Um, you develop basic civics and policies, like perhaps you might focus on crafts. Um, perhaps you decide you want to be led by a god king. And as you go on, you discover that you're not alone. So actually you're in competition with other civilizations and there's a whole range of them. So I like to play as Scythia because I like those Eurasian horse raiders. Um, but you can choose Arabia, the Ottomans, Nubia, Ethiopia, India, China, Indonesia, the Maori, you know, a whole lot of different um, civilizational um, characters and, and characteristics. Uh, and you have to basically compete with the others to find your way in the world from uh, ancient times all the way through to the nuclear age and, and even beyond. Hopefully um, resilient as, uh, as Anwar Ibrahim wishes us to, to be. Um, thank you so much indeed, Stephen Jedges and, uh, and Amrita Mali. I do appreciate all those marvellous suggestions. You're very welcome. No problem. Thanks Thanks for having us. And Stephen is the ABC's foreign affairs reporter. I'm Rita Marley, an historian at Flinders um, and the ANU. Head to the Saturday Extra website for details of their picks. And here's some of the music playing under me from the computer game Civilization VI, which Amrita recommended. Now, next week, we hope to return to the education debate, by the way, uh, that we started here last week, uh, because... We sampled it anyway because the Education Minister, Justin Clare, will be governing a year-long debate about how we spend the altogether $72 billion that is available as state and territories to actually improve student performance. So that's to come. And I would like to mention Rear Vision's latest uh, episode called The Battle for the Soul of the Catholic Church. While ideological battles in the church are not unusual, as a lot of us would know, it's rare they're aired so publicly with the Pope under such sustained attack. So what is going on there? Um, as you know, Rear Vision always does a great um, job in explaining and throwing forward to what might be coming. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.